you're listening to How to Love, a podcast about writing in all its forms. Here's your host, Sonia Wilson. Kia ora tato. welcome to episode 5, How to Love, Crime and Thrillers. Yes, we'll be shining the light on the dark and mysterious depths of crime writing today. We'll talk thrillers, mysteries, psychological dramas, whodunits and discuss whodunit best. Uh, and it's very exciting because we have our most geographically diverse panel of guests on the series so far. We are crossing continents and hemispheres today, though they are all Kiwis. I have with me here in the Auckland studio, the author of the runaway success story, The Girl in the Mirror, Miss Rose Carlyle. Welcome, Rose. Morena, Sonia. Uh, and the author of the incredibly successful Call Me Evie was his debut, then came In the Clearing and Tell Me Lies. Joining us from across the ditch in Melbourne, we have Mr. JP Pomare. Morena, Josh. Got a Sonia. Uh, and then all the way from the other side of the world, speaking to us from a wintry nighttime London, we have Craig Sisterson. Craig um, recently released the guide to Antipodean crime fiction, Southern Cross Crime, and he's the founder of the Nio Marsh Awards. Welcome, Craig. How are you going? Yora Sonia, uh, thanks for having me. It's lovely to chat to some Kiwis all spread around the world. So. <laughs> hey, I'm going to uh, pick on you first, Craig, as our sort of resident academic, I shall call you. Can you kick us off by explaining to everyone what we are talking about when we talk about crime fiction? How far does the genre extend? Well, I think crime fiction nowadays is a very broad church, and I'm sorry, that's a terrible cliche. Um, <laughs> someone else... Uh, referred to it as a, a large mansion with lots of different rooms and i think that's very true often when people the knee-jerk reaction when people think of crime fiction is they think of agatha christie and naya marsh or raymond chandler kind of the mean streets or the old crossword puzzly books like like a kind of a book version of a cluedo game you know kind of thing and that's detective fiction and murder mysteries and that's really only part of crime fiction because crime goes the whole way from books that are that cosy style through to dark stuff that's almost like horror, serial killer thrillers. You've got humorous crime. You've got crime that's more about the impact of the crime on people than solving or investigating the crime. Psychological thrillers like JP and Rose both write very, very, very well. And, you know, so there's a whole range varying towards... Um, and the thing I love about crime is that I do think there's something there for everyone. Whether you love literary fiction, there's literary crime novels. If you love romance, there's romantic thrillers. If you love horror, there's serial killer thrillers. And if you like that classic old school Agatha Christie Nightmare stuff, there's still plenty of that being written as well. Hey, Rose, you're sort of a relative newbie to this genre. Why thrillers for you? Why not romance or literary fiction? How did you end up in this genre? Um, I think the reason that I ended up writing thrillers is that I didn't realise I was writing a thriller. So I have to confess that uh, I just came up with a story along with my sister and um, we thought it had some great twists. And I think if we'd stopped and thought about it, we would have realised it was a thriller. But um, we didn't really do the thing that authors are meant to do, which is to research the genre and understand all of the subgenres. So I actually had to start doing that in a huge hurry after the novel was published or after it was accepted for publication so that I could understand where it was placed in the market. Um, 
but I think what attracted me was that I wanted to write something that was a page turner and so I wanted to be quite plot focused and I actually still have trouble understanding the where the lines are drawn around crime fiction because so many novels that are clearly not crime fiction do have a crime in them and it's often quite a major plot point. A lot of literary fiction has an action in it that's actually a crime. Um, but I guess maybe the distinction is that crime fiction is very plot focused. It's very much about what's going to happen next rather than lingering on the page that you're on at the moment, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Josh, how about you as a writer? You're sort of three books deep into the genre now. Was was the crime and thriller shelf always where your books were going to end up or was that where they happened to end up? Um, no, it's, it's funny. I, I think probably similar to um, Rose, I had uh, an experience of writing a book that I had no idea where it would end up and um, I had an idea of what the story was. Uh, I think it was an early draft, certainly much more character driven. Um, and I think, you know, you learn to write a book by writing a book, but you also learn to write a book by working with editors as well. So when I brought other people into the room, we started to have these conversations about plot and about making all the elements of the story work. You can't just have this kind of meandering um, literary ideal uh if you're, if you're writing about, you know, some of the things I was writing about, generally there has to be some structure to it. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think after Evie, I accepted um, that I was a crime writer. Um, I, 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 I kind of resisted at first, I think, and now I love the fact that it's that's the genre I, I'm writing in. Um, but to sort of add to that, I would say, um, oddly, you know, sometimes I'll still find in the clearing and... Um, the general fiction um, sections of bookshops and libraries and things, which is really kind of, which annoys me because um, it's one, it's, I, in my view, much more typically uh, crime. It's much more of a crime novel. There's a very clear investigation and um, all the elements of crime are there. Um, but at the same time, the other thing that I find frustrating is because, um, you know, I, I've accepted I'm a crime writer and suddenly they're putting my books in the general fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think it was, yeah, when I, when I, when I'd written Evie, submitted it, got the contract and then those conversations happened. Why were you reluctant to be a crime writer? Um, Well, I think all my, all my heroes um, are, are writing in literary fiction, if I'm being quite honest. So I think, I think certainly, um, well, in saying that, you know, many books were, that I loved would probably would these days probably be marketed as crime and probably sit in the crime section. Um, I'm not sure if you, you would ever find Kurt Vonnegut in the crime section, but maybe, um, you know, so I think like Craig said, it has become this beast that consumes these sort of micro genres, all these fringe books that are, that may in the past have been considered literary. So I think it was a, a bit of, literary snobbery, but also just the fact that, like I said, Cormac McCarthy, he's probably my favourite author of all time, um, and, and authors that I deeply admire aren't crime writers, and I sort of wanted to be, you know, in, in that league. Um, so I guess that was the main thing. Do you think now, Craig, that a lot of books are getting put on the crime shelf that weren't before because crime and thriller writing 
is huge. I mean, it's always been huge, but I know a couple of years ago it overtook every other genre in terms of the amount it was selling in the UK, where you are, for example. It is the most requested genre of work in many libraries. Uh, it's massive. <laughs> what is the enduring appeal of it? And are more people jumping onto that crime writing ship now because of that popularity? Well, I do think it's always been popular. When you think of Sherlock Holmes and the, the long-standingness of that and how many movies and television programs have been made about something that was written 125 years ago and how many versions of the character. You know, Ian Rankin was the biggest-selling author in the UK before J.K. Rowling came along, and now he's selling tons again nowadays as well. James Patterson's one of the biggest-selling authors in the world for the last 20 years. I mean, crime's always been huge. Going back to Naya Marsh and Agatha Christie were two of only five novelists in the 1950s that had literally like a million books released onto the market in a single day. It was like George Orwell, Agatha Christie, Naya Marsh and a couple of others. So it was mainly crime writers again. So crime's always been popular. Um, I think some of what J Josh has touched on is that sometimes the semantics about where you draw definitions or genre boundaries, and some of that's marketing or where you slot them on a booksellers shelf or where you slot them on a library shelf regardless of the story and where you draw the line so some of that has perhaps shifted some of that was to do perhaps with some cultural cringe and some literary snobbery but there's some been some brilliant crime writing even in true crime you go back to like in cold blood by truman capote which was a book that changed journalism and it changed true it changed like long-form journalism and book journalism forever and it was a crime book about these two crazy killers and and you know rural america and stuff so i think there's always been high quality crime fiction there's always been very popular crime fiction as well and it's just um yeah, sometimes there's little arguments about the definitions and the semantics and where you slot them on the page. But, you know, good stories are good stories regardless of how you define them. So. Why do we love stories about mayhem and murder and fatally flawed characters with, you know, who commit terrible, terrible deeds? What is it, do you think, Rose, that appeals to us in those types of stories? I think it's that we're sitting cosy in our beds while we read them. So it allows us to explore some of the dark side of human nature while also being able to close the page if it gets too scary. I actually couldn't read um, In Cold Blood because it was true. I had to skip the most crucial uh 20 pages or so of it because I just couldn't bear the fact that the story was actually true. So mm. I find it strange to be a crime writer when I find a lot of it too scary and too intense, particularly um, if it's true. And I, and I like being able to remind myself that someone just made it up and I can skip pages if I want to. Um, but I also think that uh, we do, I mean, almost all literature explores the boundaries of human behaviour. And that's why you will often, if you look, carefully at literary fiction, for example, you'll often find that a crime is actually at the heart of the story or is a crucial part of the story because I guess we're interested in the extremes of human emotion, of people getting desperate enough that they do want to break the rules that we normally live by. And it's almost as though it's a cautionary tale for us. You know, if you look at fairy tales, I've often said that um, I think a fairy tale 
fairy tales were told to children in the past by mothers who were warning them, if I die, I want you to remember that this is how life can turn out. That's probably why they had so many wicked stepmothers, you know, <laughs> because they were saying, don't trust whoever comes along and replaces me. Um, and I almost feel as though crime fiction is still doing that. It's kind of reminding us that, well, you know, people could actually behave this badly in your real life. And um, in a way, reading a, a book can prepare you for those those circumstances, which actually will almost certainly never happen in real life, but we like to feel prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, you do hear the term, and I think you used it just earlier, Rose, you do hear that term page-turner employed more about crime and thriller writing than perhaps many other genres. Um, is that what the appeal is to, do you think, Josh, just that basic want to know what happens next? Readers that just want to know what happens next, or does it go deeper? than that, as, as Rose has obviously already suggested. No, I, th- I think there's, um, I think in other forms of f- fiction, there is a sort of uh, a focus on um, the interior world in, in, a, in a, I don't know if more nuanced is the right way of putting it, but in, in a way that's um, probably more subtle, I'd say, whereas with uh, crime um, that, you know, the, the, that internal energy is really kind of um, it, it's high, you know. It's 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 you're you're tapping into some pretty strong emotions. Whereas, um, you know, in other forms of fiction, you might be talking about very subtle shifts inside someone, and that happens over the course of the entire book. In a in a novel of suspense or a psychological thriller, you're tapping into um, these very base um, anger, fear, these very base sort of high pitch emotions that um, that you can sort of um, that can peak multiple times throughout the novel and and it's sort of you know in many cases it might be seen as a manipulation like the cliffhanger ending and so on and so forth um, but the fact of the matter is I think with crime um, in particular and and um, most crime novels we are looking at as I said uh, you know these these base emotions that come that can come on quite suddenly. Um, fear, obviously, is a is a popular one, um, and that just kept, I think drives the narrative much more so than, um, as I said, exploring uh, you know other other sort of facets of the interior world. Um, and to add just to Rose's point, I think um, you know I think when we do look at uh, crime novels and we look at um, the power of crime, it's, it's also the fact you can tap into these really big emotions for the duration of the entire novel that makes the, it such an attractive, um, you know, not only for escapism, but makes it really attractive as a, to most readers is the fact that you can, as I said, access these big emotions, um, these really rich um, and, and sort of deep stories as well. Um, and if, if all novels have an, or if most novels have an aspect of crime about it, I think the difference with crime is it's uh, investigating the crime and really focusing and honing in on the crime um, as well. It, it does seem bizarre to me as a reader that there is sort of, like Rose suggested, some sort of comfort involved in these stories, even though they're about terrible things. Yeah, well, I guess I guess um, it's an interesting thing that we read a book. I almost feel like people read a book for two completely opposite reasons and I really noticed that with readers of The Girl in the Mirror because it's set in these beautiful locations and there are some wealthy 
characters leading glamorous lives. And so readers read in order to escape into a beautiful world that's better than their own real life problems. But then the problems that arise for the characters are so terrible that maybe at the end of the book, the readers are really, really happy about how their lives are in comparison. And they don't mind that they don't own a luxury yacht or a fantastic clifftop mansion because at least they're not dealing with the kind of horrific situations that you know the main character ends up in. So it's a really interesting contradiction between escaping from your real life into a beautiful world and um, and then also escaping into a world that's so awful that you feel quite comforted to come back into reality at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, Craig, you started the Naya Marsh Awards and, and, and are still involved in them. I wonder if you can tell us what, um, in your experience, what separates good crime writing from bad what makes a novel good or great or award-winning hmm. <laughs> it's a complicated question sonia because um all of us as readers look for different things and with the naya marsh awards right from the start we've had quite a large judging panel um you know five to seven judges from all around the world to try and get a broad range of perspectives on our Kiwi writing. And, um, you know, there's very rarely a unanimous decision. (laughs) They all have differing opinions of what they like and love. But I think, um, not to make too sweeping generalisations, for a good crime novel, you do need that page-turning aspect. I mean, I think you need that for most novels, to be honest, and you can do it in different ways. Um, But you do need, I mean, the whole point, or not, the whole task for any author, perhaps is a better word, is that you want the reader to be invested enough that they want to carry on with the story. They've got to want to turn the page to find out more, whether it's about the character, whether it's about an exciting plot, whether it's a lovely setting, whether it's a, um, a situation that's come about. They need to want to turn the page. So I think any good crime novel needs to have that. And uh, perhaps it's just more stark in crime fiction, but I think it's there in all fiction in subtler ways as well. And so there has to be a good narrative drive to get you through the book. Um, for me personally, I uh, actually think that although a lot of people think of crime fiction and other genre fiction, whether it's sci-fi, fantasy or romance, is very plot-based, I actually don't think that's true at all. I think character and setting can be the most important things. And and plot is really just kind of the, uh, the structure or the blueprint to kind of get people there, kind of like it's the... Um, the bones of the building but it's really the character and the setting that fills it out and makes it for people and particularly for the stuff that i would consider award-winning or the best stuff i mean it's interesting that as i say a lot of times historically people have thought of crime as plot-based and i think that goes back to christie and holmes in terms of those puzzling stories naya marsh and the like as well but when you think about it there are very few other genres in the world of storytelling where people are so invested in characters, they don't just follow them throughout one book, they often follow them throughout 10 or 15 or 20 books. Now, crime fiction and thriller fiction often has long-standing characters, um, some who don't change very much, but others who do change and evolve over 20, 30 years. So you're not just invested in the character enough over one story, you're actually invested over many, many years, whether it's Ian Rankin or Michael Connolly or Val McDermott or Denise Minor or Lee Child or all these other authors. And so I do think character is actually at the crux of very good crime fiction. And the thing that made both JP and Rose's recent thrillers so good is that they do have that page-turning stuff and they do grab you early on and you want to turn the page. But if you didn't 
give a shit, sorry, <laughs> if you didn't care about the characters, you wouldn't be half as invested in the exciting plot lines. So you had to care about the characters that are caught up in the cult. You had to care about the characters that are caught up in this crazy-ass family you know, kind of thing. And actually, whether you like them or not, they don't have to be likable, but they have to be fascinating or interesting enough, compelling enough that you want to carry on. Kind of like Tony Soprano and The Sopranos, not really a likable dude. A lot of his friends aren't, but there was something fascinating and compelling about him that made you want to keep watching the, sort of the series, not just the kind of shootouts and the conspiracy machinations of the New Jersey Mafia. That is pretty much um, the perception of people, isn't it, that, that crime and thrillers are very plot-heavy. That is, that is the major consideration when discussing this genre. Um, and, Craig, obviously you've pointed out that character and setting is, is equally, if not more so, important. Um, I want to talk about point of view a little bit as well. Um, and, and how that comes into play here, because both um, Rose's Girl in the Mirror and and Josh's Call Me Evie, they're both in that written in the first person. Rose, why did you choose first person for your story, and what can you achieve in first person that you couldn't have perhaps in third? Well, the conventional wisdom is that you write in first person because your narrator might be unreliable. Um, and I'm not actually a big fan of that myself. I don't really want to write an unreliable narrator. Um, I guess that's just my personality that I, I enjoy reading books where that happens, but I don't want to have... Because I, I guess I struggle with it because it's fiction anyway. So if, you're, if your main character is telling a story that even within the fictional universe didn't really happen, I find that quite confusing as a writer, although I do... I have seen it done very cleverly as a reader. Um, so there was actually a particular reason that The Girl in the Mirror had to be written in first person, which I can't really explain right now without spoiling the very end of the book. So I knew that I had to, but I'm not, I'm not even a huge fan of first person writing. I keep hoping that I'm going to come up with a book that will work in third person <laughs> one day, but I, I just seem to keep coming up with story ideas that demand to be told in first person. And I think that's something really interesting about point of view, that if you try to write it in the wrong point of view, you'll realise that this isn't working and you'll have to go back and change it because there really is only, I mean, I believe there's really only one best way that each story can be told. And um, when I was writing the Girl in the Mirror, I almost felt as though I was investigating a real story rather than making it up because I would always know when I got onto the right next step in the story. Do you know what I mean? Rather than, you, you sort of don't get to choose. You've got your story and you're stuck with it and, and it has to be the way that it has to be and that includes even the point of view that you write it from. And I also had to write in present tense, which I didn't really want to do because I'd heard lots of people don't like it, but... I was stuck with it. The story chose that for me. Right. So you didn't have a crack at writing it in third first or in past tense? No, because I knew I knew that I was going to get caught out if I did that. So I had to write in first person present tense, which is probably my least favourite. But, um, you know, yeah, the story dictates what... I felt like the story dictated everything. I mean, why was I, a middle-aged New Zealand woman, writing about this 23-year-old Australian 
beauty queen with an identical twin. None of this is my life, but um, that was sort of what was demanded of the story. And I think Josh probably feels the same because he was writing was a teenage girl in Call Me Evie because that's who the story had to be about. You know, it couldn't be about a, a grown man. And so, you, you, yeah, once you have a story that you really love and you really want to tell, it dictates to you how you're going to tell it. And you, if you go wrong, it just doesn't work. Mm. And although, as you said, you don't necessarily want to bring that sort of unreliable narrator into it, it is implicit in the first person, isn't it, I think, as a reader, that the unreliable narrator is, a, is at play, that there's a possibility that it could be there. So you're never really sure as a reader whether you can trust what the narrator's telling you. Um, is, is that something that is more common in crime and thrillers, Josh, do you think that that having that, A, the, the first person point of view, but also having that unreliable narrator at play, um, where, you know, the narrator's, just for the benefit of those that, that, that don't know, where the narrator is speaking in first person, but is not necessarily always speaking the truth as others see it, or they're holding something back or what have you? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, little bit to unpack there. I mean, what I would say is if you open, go to the bookshop, grab any um, psychological thriller or um, novel of suspense off the bookshelf and open it and you'll find it's more often than not um, first person and almost always um, present tense as well these days. So it's, it's, I think it's also, uh, it's what works, obviously. Um, the other thing I'd say um about just just about writing in first person in general is if you have a very strong if, if your character's voice is really strong I think it's a crime not to access the story through that character because I think voice is such a um, it, it's, it's a tool to actually allow um, your readers to in, inhabit these characters if they can connect with the voice it's like you know there's you you go to the pub and um, you meet someone for the first time and there's something about how they speak and their energy and their view of the world that connects with you immediately um, or you find fascinating. And I think if you have a character who has that, has that, then you have to access the story um, through, their, through them. But in saying that, you know, if their narrative viewpoint doesn't access the story in the best possible way, that's when you obviously can look at things like multiple narrators and stuff like that or introduce um, you know, third person characters or, or, you know, obviously there's no rules. So you can really, um, I think the, the other thing is you can also, in terms of um, first person um, narration, you can alternate. There's all sorts of different um, ways you can, you can approach it. But I, but I would say if the voice of the character is strong, then you've got to, you've got to bring that element into play. And, you know, like, I don't mean to get met metaphysical here, but I think if you are, if you are telling a story, uh, obviously, we all experience our own realities, and so first-person narration is inherently always going to have a level of unreliability because, um, as I said, our experience of the world is is completely unique, and our realities are completely unique. And so, for us to represent our realities, um, it's going to be slightly different to the other characters or a omniscient perspective or whatever. Um, so, I think in terms of when we talk about unreliable narrators in in um, crime fiction, in particular psychological thrills and suspense, we generally talk about 
a twist that is contingent on the unreliability of the narrator and how unreliable they are. And I think it's evident, um, certainly in Call Me Evie, for instance, um, but in many novels, I think it's evident really early on that the narrator is unreliable, which is another sort of plot device as well, is trying to um, decode this reality and realising that this narrator is unreliable, but trying to work out what the story is um, can be a lot of fun as well. So I think it is becoming, I don't know if it's becoming more popular, but I think um, it's becoming harder to to use it in a in a original way because mm-hmm. of how, um, how frequently it has been used in the past. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about structure a little bit um, and stick with Call Me Evie while we're here. Um, the, when we're Dealing with mysteries, I guess structure becomes quite important because it's the laying out of, of of a story that has to be told in a certain way to either enhance the mystery or to slowly reveal it or whatever it is that you're trying to do. The structure of Call Me Evie, Josh, um, obviously you're running two timelines, a before and an after, and as a reader you don't know what, before what or after what. Um how many sort of cracks at the structure did you have? Was was that the 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 your first idea that you stuck with, or did you try a few different ways of of getting through that story? Um, I think it was quite early on. I mean, the the narrative structure for me was always there was a, there was a focal point, a centerpiece um, to the to the story, um, and I wanted. At first, uh, the narrative worked, one narrative worked forward from that and one narrative worked backwards and you never really knew what it was. And I thought that was really fun. Um, And I was inspired actually uh, by a book called All the Birds Singing by Evie Wilde, um, which is actually where I got the name from um, for, for for my book. So in that book, there is one narrative running backwards and one narrative running forwards and they start at the same point. And I thought this is brilliant and it seemed to work with the story I had in mind. So as I was working through those first few edits by myself, um, before I had an agent or anything, I started to toy with the idea of a reverse narrative. So each chapter ends, uh, sorry, each chapter begins at the end of the next chapter, if that makes sense. So the sort of reverse narrative, um, spliced with this just linear narrative from the event. Um, And the problem was it was too confusing and just far too clever for I was about to say, you get too clever pretty easily. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And so, and and I'm still obsessed with the idea of narrative structure and um, the way you can set twists up with narrative structure. And I think... um, I mean, my my favourite book that I've written is definitely in the clearing... Um, and I think with that, there's also an element of the structure is quite important to to the story. Um, but yeah, I don't know, with Evie, it was, I think it was just finding out what the actual most important part of the story was and what's the most effective way I can present that to the reader. It's harder than it seems, isn't it, to make a twist work in a story or to make the structure of your story do what it's supposed to do in terms of the revealing of a mystery? Yeah, I I think it's actually a really difficult skill for writers. And it's um, one of those things that we talked about earlier, plotting is so important to crime fiction. And I do think it's vitally important. I just think character and setting are also very important. But um, but crime fiction is one of those genres where the plotting is vital. I don't think it's of supreme importance, but it's vital. 
and and there is yeah it's it is really important for for setting things up and doing them in the right way and i think there's a lot of skill involved and i've interviewed Ooh, over 300 crime writers now for magazines and newspapers in the last 12 years. Um, my book and magazines, newspapers on stage at various festivals on three continents and all that kind of thing. And I think it, it's sometimes undervalued outside of writers or outside of crime writers is just the amount of work that sometimes goes into trying to deliver that story. And it is a framework. As I say, it's not necessarily the most important thing. You've got to have character and setting and, and you know, good issues and things that people care about, narrative drive, good voice and point of view is all really good as well. But yeah, it can be really, and I've talked to a lot of writers who, have, who find the plotting, and they're crime writers, but they find the plotting the most difficult thing. And that's the thing that they do over and over and over and over again through the edits. And it can take a lot of work. So I think there's a, to keep it fresh, to keep it something that hasn't been seen before, you're not just doing same twists that have been in a hundred books or something that Agatha Christie or Naya Marsh did 80 years ago, you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's an undervalued skill and it's incredibly important in terms of how it delivers those other things that readers love, the voice and the setting and the characters. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get to some recommendations because we can talk more about craft as, as we go through these. Um, I asked you all to sort of think about some of the books that you've read that are that are ones to sort of hold up high and when we're talking about this genre. And, and Craig, um, you've suggested a, a few, the first of which was uh, Paul Cleave's Trust No One, um, which is a book that opens with a man jauntily recalling his first murder, <laughs> uh, ri- written by um, Paul Cleaver, as I said, Christchurch writer. He's written, what, 10 or 11 novels now. Why this writer and why this particular book for you? I think Paul's just a magnificent writer, regardless of genre. He's got a really strong voice, Um he has is one of those writers that when you read through, even if you're reading like a serial killer and you might have read a hundred other serial killer thrillers, there's little phrases, little ways of observations about the world going on and the characters and the description and the setting, just little things that um, I've said it before, so um, I don't want to kind of become a cliche myself, but his prose kind of crackles, like there's a crackle, there's like an energy to it and electricity through it. And I think a lot of good writers have that with their perspective. So I love that about, his writing and I really enjoyed his earlier books um Blood Men and Five Minutes Alone and and um Cemetery Lake going the whole way back to the cleaner which was a massive hit in Germany um but the thing I really love about what Paul's done in his last two or three books and starting kind of Trust No One was kind of the start of this he's become very experimental and Trust No One there's a lot going on um about this crime writer who starts getting early onset Alzheimer's, Jerry Gray, he's written under a pseudonym, very successful, starts getting early onset Alzheimer's in his late 40s, starts confessing that his books were based on crimes that he committed himself when he was younger. Um, and it's like, who do you believe? And it's like the ultimate unreliable narrator because <laughs> yeah. the, narrate, the narrator himself doesn't even know if he's reliable or not. <laughs> so it's not, a, it's not a case of the narrator pulling the wool over the reader's eyes for whatever reasons they may have holding things back or not telling the whole story is that he genuinely doesn't know himself whether he's being honest or not and it's it's multifaceted it's multi-time frame there's multiple perspectives from the same character even using you know different even second person perspective on one point i think whereas uh the the writer that he writes under the pseudonym of his kind of pen name 
has kind of a voice at one point as well, talking about Jerry as if he's a separate person. Then he has a madness journal. And I think it's just, it's a really great example of how you can be experimented, it's experimental in crime fiction. And you can play with structure and you can play with narrative. And it's just a hell of a good kind of serial killer thriller. And, and it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny. Yeah. Yeah, Paul has a really great sense of dark humour or gallows humour, if you will. Um, and he can take you to some very dark places, but it's kind of nicely balanced. I, I never think he kind of veers into that kind of really nasty torture porn stuff or anything like that. He makes your mind go to dark places, but I think he does it with a great touch. I just think it's a really brilliant book and it's an ultimate example of uh, an unreliable narrator. I think, and it's cool that he's one of our writers, but I just love that book anyway. So. The other one you mentioned was uh, Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Uh, Cosby, described on the cover of that book um, as an urgent, timely, pitch-perfect jolt of American noir. Why do you like it? Oh, this oh, I've actually got it sitting right here. I mean, I'll hold it up for your listeners can't see it. <laughs> um, I just, I'd heard some really good things before it came out from various people. And then it's always nice when you hear great things about a book and then you read it and it not only delivers, it delivers beyond your very high expectations you had for it. And it's, it, it combines a lot of things I love um, and it's just really good writing. It's um, S.A. Cosby or Sean, um, like Josh, he uses kind of initials in his name, but uh, he's a working class black American man from the rural South. And, and he's written one novel before and won awards for a short story writing, but this is kind of his big breakthrough novel. It's the first time I'd read him. And it's just, there's such a strong character voice. And it's about uh, a kind of middle-aged black man who's a mechanic. So he's a blue collar guy with a family trying to feed his family. He was very good getaway driver for heists in his youth and kind of races cars for fun just to try and earn money now and again because he's a mechanic. And, of course, something crops up where he has to do one last job when he hasn't done anything for a while and it all goes horribly wrong. But the book kind of combines kind of that fun heist nature of Ocean's Eleven and those kind of things. There's that fun of how clever can they do it? Can they pull it off or not? Everything goes wrong. Can they get out of it? But it's also got that kind of gritty rural noir, that grit lit of the American South. And then it's got a very strong kind of perspective on race in modern day America and um, not just black and white, but beyond that and family. And it's just, it's a really strong voice. It's a really great plot line. It's great characters. And it's, I'm kind of coin tossing. This is my book of the year with one other book. And that's out of like a lot of <laughs> read. And um, but it's it's just an extraordinary novel, and I'm very pleased that a lot of people seem to be liking it as well. Awesome. And and just quickly, finally, you you mentioned Vanda Simon's Back to the South Island. We go with Dunedin writer and her um, Sam Shepard series, which is the sort of classic detective back to that side yeah, of things. I I just wanted to drop that one in because we we were talking to, a lot today about thrillers and often about kind of what we would call standalone thrillers, whereas so much of crime fiction is about series characters as well. Um, you know, a lot of the authors that we've grown up loving and the authors that got us into it maybe had series and they had characters we could follow over more than one book. And there's an immense skill involved in creating an a awesome standalone thriller like Rose and JP have or like Sean has with this book, though maybe he'll bring the character back, I would hope, <laughs> or Paul did with Trust No One. But I think Vanda's just 
It's one of those things like I grew up, you know, you're, you're reading Ian Rankin or Val McDermott, Michael Connolly, people like that it was a character going over a lot of books. And I just think she does that so well where it's, it's kind of what I would call really balanced. Some books are really heavy on plot and the character and the setting might be a bit thin. You know, something like, um, I've said this in reviews, so I guess I can be honest, but someone like James Patterson, where it's really about the twists and the plot and the page turning thing, and the characters are all right. But, and then there's other people who are really deep characters and maybe not so much happens, and there's other people with really rich settings. And I think people like Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, and Michael Connolly and others, they just have that balance between all the different aspects of character, plot, setting, issues going bubbling along the background. And I think Vander just does that really well. Her main character, Sam, is this kind of fierce, feisty, for one of a, sorry, terrible word, kind of young female cop who goes from a small town, kind of sole charge cop, then goes to the big city and is a junior detective, lowest on the totem pole, dealing with all the boys club and the misogyny, lots of stuff going off out of the job and in the job, clever plot lines, strong main character, good Dunedin and Southern setting. I think it just ticks all the boxes. And she's kind of slowly and steadily building up a really strong readership here in the UK, which has happened kind of, you know, 10 years after she first started writing. She's only been published over here in the UK in the last two or three years. So it's kind of belatedly happening. And yeah, she's becoming quite popular, kind of that natural organic growth that some of those other writers I mentioned had over the course of their careers. JP, when when I asked you to, to recommend books, um, Gone Girl was one of them. And it it was a huge, you know, success all over the world. Uh, what is it about that book that that particularly um, spoke to you? Um, well, I'm, well, one, I'd say I'm always sort of like to recommend a book I read a long time ago because, it, you know, it's this genre is um, pumping out more books than any other um, by a stretch. And I think psychological thrillers are, um, you know, it's really tricky to to do them well now because there are so many of them. And Gone Girl was so early that maybe if you read it today, you would see the twists or it wouldn't be as, um, as groundbreaking, I suppose. But when I read it, um, I don't know, when it came out seven years ago or whatever, I, um, I was completely uh, gobsmacked by by a the twist but b um the voice i think um gillian flynn writes voice better than you know anyone i've read in a long time she's um just that kind of she she captured amy dunn uh and nick dunnett as a matter of fact so so well that i just had to know um everything about both of them um her use of the diary and everything just sort of inspired me to, to, if anything, um, want to write more like that. And I spoke earlier about how I was, you know, early drafts and certainly short stories and things have always sort of leaned more literary. This definitely dragged me the other way, I think, because of how strong um, that voice was in the plot. And it showed me that good writing can be present in twisty, very well-plotted novels as well so it was one of the first novels where i thought this is this is written extremely well um and the plot is airtight and um the twists have got me so yeah i just thought it was the perfect psychological thriller um it's also one thing that's we don't think about much with this book is the fact that the first half of it is more just pure suspense and mystery 
and the second half is uh, is is more of just a thriller, um, and the fact that that the twist sort of comes right in the middle, and that kind of is the demarcation between the suspense and the thriller, um, which you know as a, a structurally you know as as a writer I think that's what you want is lots of mystery and suspense towards the beginning and. And then you want that kind of emotional peak where the real dangers um, present, and you know, and and our protagonist has to confront the um, the danger. Um, but I've never seen it so clean as that. You know, this just this you're reading on, and you're just completely intrigued and enamoured with these characters, and you just want to know um, what happened. And then suddenly you do know, but you're terrified for them. So um, yeah, it's, I think it's a brilliant. Um, psychological thriller, and as I said, a, a groundbreaking one—one one that sort of introduced a lot of readers to this to this genre. Yeah, awesome. Um, you also mentioned the Rules of Backyard Cricket by Jock Sarong, another Australian writer. Dark sort of psychological um, tale. Tell us about that one. Yeah, well, this is—I mean, I think I'm—I stretch the genre a little bit, um, perhaps less so than Craig, but I think this does exists as a as a crime novel but it's also exists outside of the genre um, and attracted lots of general readers to crime um, because jock is a um, f- f- amazing at a sentence level he's an incredible writer um, he's he's really committed to his craft so this is another particularly well-written story um, when I say it brought a lot of people over to the genre you know, maybe there's lots of people that were already reading both cricket bios and you know, crime novels, um, but this is a very of, specific subset of the population. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, there's this. This is the, the book I gave to my father-in-law, who reads you know a book every couple of years, and it's always nonfiction, um, and he loved. And it's it's uh, the power of, and that is that it, it it attracts readers to the genre, but it's also it just means it's a damn good book. Um, he, it's about, you know, at, at its core, it's about sibling rivalry, but it's also about corruption, accountability, uh, transparency. It's about um, toxic masculinity, which Jock writes about really well. So he does tackle big, big issues in his work, um, but he also writes a very, very gripping narrative as well. Um, so I, I loved this book. I, I came to it late. I didn't actually read it when it came out. Um, I met jock and have become good friends with him since um but i met him and i go oh well i'll read your book now uh, and i loved it and then i've just ripped through his backlist so um yeah that, it's a fantastic book and as i said it's one for um readers in the genre who perhaps uh haven't read many crime novels or or don't quote unquote read crime or don't read fiction this is the book to give to them Awesome. Uh, Rose, if, I can... If I could... Um, sorry, Sonia, could it's I just okay. jump in there um, on a couple of points kind of coming off the back of what Josh says? Because, one, I love that book. That's an amazing book. That's a, The Rules of Backyard Crickets, an Australian New Zealand crime novel I recommend to people all the time. It's just a brilliant book. And I, I co-sign everything Josh says about the, the power of jocks writing at a sentence level and everything. But I just wanted to pick up on something um, Josh kind of said there about how Jock brings in so many social issues and toxic masculinity and corruption in sport and sibling rivalry. And there's also kind of a coming of age story and growing up in suburban Australia. There's so many things going on. And it kind of circles back to a thing we touched on, but 
carried on earlier is one of the things that I think is brilliant about crime fiction is something that has been part of its evolution of the last kind of 20, 30, 40 years of the 150 plus years it's been around in novel form is that inclusion and exploration of social issues through the prism of a page turning story. So you've got this page turning, often quite crimey plot line, but so many of the great crime novels nowadays are dealing with these big, deep issues. And we've seen over here in the UK, it was the likes of Ian Rankin and other Scottish crime writers that were actually grappling with the devolution of Scottish Parliament, changing things with immigration, modern society, technology, more so than other writers in other genres. So they were writing crime books, but they were writing very much about society as it now as is now. And crime has been called by people the modern social novel because it does deal so well with these modern social issues. And you see, like in in the clearing with Josh, you you got a lot about kind of cults and how people can be brought into these things and why they may stick stick with them and why it may linger over years even people who seem very intelligent or very wealthy or have all the benefits that you think that they wouldn't get sucked into these things so there's these very real life issues that are addressed in um, crime fiction it's why i like sean cosby's book why i like steph charles your house will pay was my book of last year which is about the korean american community um, and clashes with the black community during the LA riots and the aftermath years later. So there's a lot of very societal stuff going on. And I think plot-based fiction like crime can deal with it because readers get sucked into the page turning narrative and you learn stuff along the way rather than the book being about with the capital A racism. It's a crime story that happens to have lots of stuff about racism in it. And I think that's just a brilliant thing about crime. Fantastic. Rose, I can see you've got um, a book of stories by Paul Thomas sitting next to you. Um, That's his short stories, right? But he's also uh, a novelist of this genre. Tell us about why his writing appeals to you. Well, I've been sitting here thinking as we talk about some of the the things that crime fiction can bring to the world other than the plot, that uh, it's almost as though different sorts of crime novels can choose something secondary and they might be a really strong sense of place, like Call Me Evie, for example, has a very strong sense of place. They might be social commentary, which, again, I would say that Josh's novels have uh, commentary about gender in there. Um, And um, I think Gillian Flynn's books are doing that as well and uh, My Sister the Serial Killer is another novel that I think is very much about social commentary. Um, I, it was it struck me actually how little of a sense you get of the physical setting in My Sister the Serial Killer um, and that works because it's just such a short and pacey novel that you kind of don't want to stop and hear about whether there are mountains or jungle outside, that's not the point. So some books almost deliberately miss something out that's very important in other books. But the other thing that I was thinking about with Paul Thomas is, and I read him a really long time ago, like more than 20 years ago, that he um, he got me really excited about New Zealand writing because he had that humour in his crime fiction. And um, it's not humour in the sense that he wrote comic novels. You know, they're not comic novels in the sense that you could actually just read them and not find them funny at all and just enjoy the story. But there is that little element of humour in there as well, and I found that... Um, it's sort of a wryness almost, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little... It's a bit of a subtle dry humour. And the same with Paul Cleave, actually. There's, there's parts in um, 
his writing that have that have just had me laughing. But I can imagine that another person could read the book and not laugh once, but still really enjoy the book and think of it as really successful and not even really realise that they've missed anything. And I've I, I kind of struggled with that when I was writing The Girl in the Mirror, that I was finding some of it really funny, but I didn't really think anyone else would. And then I heard Chris Hammer talking to Craig before it was published and saying, oh, it's a funny thriller. And I thought, oh, is that how everyone's going to see it? And I think it's something interesting about crime fiction that some people really gravitate towards the humour or the social commentary and others just read the plot and they're quite happy to just let that whiz by because Mm. it's late at night, they're lying in bed reading a book and they've had a rough day and they just want to escape. It doesn't matter if the sentences aren't pretty. Yeah, Yeah. but I think I've realised that that's what to me was so fresh about Paul Thomas when and he was kind of ahead of his time, wasn't he, when he was writing, there was no one else doing um, that kind of really sassy and interesting and just purely entertaining reading and yet it was it was not purely entertaining in the pejorative sense you know it was actually clever and really well thought out as well okay yeah so we're going to have to wrap this up very shortly but but briefly because we're coming to the end I thought we should just talk a little bit about endings and we've talked about twists and everything but I just wonder do do thrillers and crime novels always need to have a resolution do we need to see the bad guy or the protagonist or whoever it is get their get their comeuppance Rose do you want to take this one um yeah I like I have I feel that the open-ended novel has kind of had its day I'm sure that there's going to be people out there who disagree and who still love them but I like the novel to have an ending and to make it clear how it ended but having said that I've definitely had readers get in touch with me over the internet to say what happened in the end (laughs) and um, yeah I sort of feel like saying oh can you just go back and just read it again really carefully because I don't feel that I want I don't feel that the author should add anything to the end of the book. And I've, I heard uh, Camilla Shamsi struggle with this at a writer's festival too, where a, a, a reader stood up and asked the entire room if she could please explain the ending. <laughs> um, so I quite like that there could be a little bit left that's not fully explained, but I don't like the idea that it's just completely unresolved, like a slice of life that just suddenly cuts off mm-hmm. without a real ending. Mm-hmm. Um Josh, is there a need, do you think, to show the consequences of crime in writing? So not just to report on a series of gruesome events, but to show the effects that these events ultimately have on the characters? Yeah, I mean, I think, in my view, you have to um, represent the real world as as accurately as possible in terms of the consequences of, of crime. Um, and what I mean by that is bad people often do get away with crime and how that happens and why. Um, I think it's pretty important that we do sort of look at these things. I mean, it's going to say earlier something I've noticed and certainly in the media is um, or like uh, people's reactions to crimes. The first thing we think, and this might be the appeal of reading crime is could this be me? What would I do in this situation? And when there's crimes and certain um, particularly in lower socioeconomic groups, we uh, certain members of the middle class, not middle class, and um, and people certainly in cities and bigger cities as well. I've noticed about rural crime; they they 
they're almost, they can distance themselves from it, you know? Um, and so I think when you tap into these stories and I only speak about small towns and rural crime because I've written about Makatu, of course, but um, when you tap into these stories, I think one, you want to show the human element um, so people can access the story in a, in a way with empathy, but two, you also want to show the real life consequences to everyone around them um, and everyone within that community. So people can, you know, feel for these people. Um, and so when I write crime and when I write about crimes, I think it is satisfying when the bad guys get caught and get in trouble, but uh, that doesn't necessarily reflect reality in the world. Often the bad guys do get away. Um, and I don't want to go into any spoilers here, but you know, in books I've read recently, um, you know, that that's certainly been the case. And I find it as satisfying, if not more when, you know, when, there's a clever twist where the bad guy does uh, end up getting away of it and how that comes to happen and why, um, you know, and that's, like I said, I think it's important to show both sides of this because that's how it works in real life. I just want to quickly jump off what JP said. I, I think there's a, there's, it has been an evolution in crime fiction as well as kind of used to be called, you know, the, the whodunits is what they were back in the day. And then they've increasingly become the why whydunits, but I also think they are also increasingly dealing with the wider impact on both the investigators, the impact on the police, and or the other investigators, and the impact on the wider community, the victim and their families. And I think that's been part of the holistic kind of evolution towards looking more broadly at society, whether it's a small community or whether it's society at large, and the impact of crime beyond just catching the criminal when Poirot used to bring everyone into the library and do the ending and say, look, this is the person who did it and I dragged away to go to prison or be hung back in the day kind of thing. And that was very, so I think there's more different endings, but also more about the impact on the characters and things like that. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. I do really appreciate it. You've been listening to writers Rose Carlisle, JP Pomare and Craig Sisterson uh, telling us how to love crime and thrillers uh, you can look us up on Facebook at How to Love Podcast for a list of all the writers and all the books we've spoken about today and of course we are on Apple, Spotify, Google all that lot uh, for other episodes discussing other genres of writing. Alright my name is Sonia Wilson, thanks so much everyone for joining us uh, thanks for listening, hi dada have a good Christmas everyone How to Love is made with the help of the Matatui Foundation and the University of Auckland. It is a Bookland production, recorded and engineered by Tim Page at the Faculty of Arts.